Blog Talk Radio. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your move. Blog Talk Radio. don't go to geico.com car insurance can seem intense like breakup r&b intense i thought you said you love the sweater that i got you if you didn't you could have told me geico makes it easy just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama i even had a at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, topics leaving a legacy. Now, how many of you have even thought about what will you leave? What will your legacy be? Will it be your voice on Blog Talk Radio? Will it be documents that you leave to a university? Will it be a book? Well, we're going to talk about leaving a legacy tonight. And my special guest, I just love her so much, is Miss Antoinette Harrell. Antoinette brings over 20 years of genealogical experiences that has resulted in the Antoinette Harrell Collection located at the Amistad Research Center in New Orleans and the Southeastern Louisiana State University. She is also the host of her own blog talk radio show, Nurturing Our Roots, and a TV show, African Roots. She is the founder and editor of the Tangipahoa African American News. Antoinette is also a community activist. And she is one of those people who will not just talk about what should be done. She does it. And I love that about her. 
You know, her most recent advocacy work has resulted in assisting the black boys of the Dozier Reform School to tell their story. She also brought the word peonage to our vocabulary before we even heard about the book, Slavery by Another Name. Well, she also worked closely with Portland State University. I mean, Antoinette has done it all. So let me give a warm welcome to my friend, Antoinette Harrell. Welcome, Antoinette. Thank you, Bernice, for having me. Well, Antoinette, take us back 20 years. Please describe how your interests, let's, let's start off with just the whole social justice, it evolved into genealogical research, family history, and later radio and TV, and newspaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Bernice, everything uh, derives from something. My mother, uh, Isabel Harrell Cook, uh, was a family historian who kept the oral history. And Bernice, I don't care when you call my mom, she always had the same stories tell you over and over and over again. It was like one day a light went off in my head and said, wait a minute, what is she trying to tell me? What should I be doing? So I just got a pencil and I got my tablet. I went out and bought myself a tape recorder and started recording those very things that my mother uh, gave to me. About eight years later, my mother had an aneurysm, and she do not talk about to this day all that information that she gave me prior to the aneurysm. My mother haven't even mentioned too much about it. So I knew then she was trying to pass it on to me to take it to another level. And that's basically how I got started, through my mom. Well, that's wonderful because it's because of her that we have an opportunity to hear about all of the wonderful things that you've done. So that's fantastic. But where do you want to start? What's your beginning? Uh, uh, (laughs) Anywhere you want to start. There's so much. You just pick the topic, and I'm going to go with it. Okay. Well, I, you know, I Googled your name. I Googled your name today, and guess what popped up? Antoinette Harrell, Ted Koppel, Times Magazine, Tell us about it, Antoinette. What did you do to have this interview with Ted Koppel? Well, Bernice, it was basically going back to uh, to genealogy research again. And, of course, when you're conducting genealogy research on your family, you are basically looking at a community. And I could not understand why I couldn't find any of my family members uh, in that sharecropping period. And then I soon learned why, because a lot of the people that went into that second uh, coming of slavery that I call known as sharecropping, well, my family didn't sharecrop very long, maybe I think a year. Well, it was the sharecroppers who I met that end up signing their names on contracts that they could not get out of, and that new form of uh, slavery called penance and involuntary servitude kind of crept upon them, and that's how I uh, got an interview with Ted Copper because he was helping me to expose this hidden truth about slavery, the new covenant of slavery, and the new disguise that slavery had, to, had taken on. Okay, all right, and then and then when you started looking at sharecropping, just what did you uncover? 
Well, Bernice, I thought like everybody else uh, that knew very little about sharecropping except for, you know, they stayed on the land, they gave up a portion of crops, and in return they received housing, clothes, uh, some food, and some medical coverage, right, or whatever it was. But I found there was another layer, deeper layers than what I was taught about. And I found that some families was in a system of slavery. And so it had me to look deeper and deeper into uh, records, into oral history, into traveling to some of those areas to talk with families who was held as sharecroppers. And so I'm very grateful that my uh, great-grandfather, Alexander Harrell, and his father, Robert Harrell, they knew what that sharecropping system meant, so they worked very hard to purchase their own land and to grow their own food. And that's how we did not end up in slavery, uh, in, in a new form of slavery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I know you also you went to the Mississippi Delta, and so tell us about what you uh, found when you uh, began your, your research in the Delta. Well, what I found was people living in conditions that was very hard to accept in America. Uh, you would have thought that you were standing in some third world country and with Mississippi being the poorest state in the nation, well, you found, and in order to be called the poorest state in the, na- in the nation, there had to be some very hard things to title it that. Well, it was, it was people still living in the year uh, the, the 2000 and 2005, 2010, without indoor plumbing, electric, not enough food to eat, uh, conditions that you just would not have thought of in America. And what took me into that area uh, is still conducting genealogy research again. You know, I knew that my family came down from Dalton, South Carolina, and when they came down to South, to, from South Carolina, they went to Mississippi, the Mississippi Territory. Well, anyway, they end up in a county, Mississippi, but there were some Harrells that went out into the Delta. And so mm-hmm. when you follow these names and you follow the trails, uh, it led me to a place where, oh, my goodness, you know, Bernie's I You know, it was – and the people who was left behind in that t- that time and period – was a lot of the elderly people who was too old to migrate up north or go somewhere else, they was left behind with the babies. So there was a lot of people that left the Deep South and went out to look for factory jobs in Chicago and Detroit, and they left the children with their mothers. And sometimes mm-hmm. they left the children in the house with somebody like themselves that could have been 10, 11 years old. And so there was a lot of homes during that time that had children that was here in the house at 10 years old. Mhm, mhm. With maybe ten, fifteen children in the house. Yeah, so you really encountered some uh, very uh, serious uh, issues as it related to sharecropping and poverty. But how did you uh, get the word out so that others would know what was going on? And what did you do from an advocacy perspective to help the people? Well, it was a very slow process of trying to get people just to. Uh, just to write about it, blog about it, speak on their radios about it, television talk shows. Well, it came, but it came a little slow. So it had to be, it had to become an activist movement where you know we had to go and collect food and clothes and winter blankets and socks to give to the people there. So it was people like Brother Nasi, Nathan and Nasi, and mm-hmm. other people that helped to pack. Uh, U-Hauls and buses of, of clothing and 
food to bring to the people in Mississippi. Just here recently, I was in Mississippi two weeks ago, and we're getting ready to open up a library in Webb, Mississippi. Of course, it's a it's a community resource library, um, mm-hmm. and so I was contacted by one of the producers of uh, the Al Jazeera show, and he's going to do a eight minute uh, little documentary that would help the youth ambassadors of of Amit, Louisiana, to help them uh, get the word out about books and and artists to come down and and paint the building and stack the the rooms with the books, you know, the bookshelves and uh, donate uh, computers. So that's the mission that I'm working on before I say, okay, it's enough now. It's time for me to sort of retire a little bit now because I've been in the Delta for a very long time. Mhm, but it it sounds like you're still moving, you're still going. It's not stopping you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 and it's all a part of you know, Bernice. It's like you 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 that love for humanity kicks in. It's not like you can just go and see people suffering. And you know, I'm trying to conduct this oral history. I'm trying to do my research, but yet I see a child that's hungry or an elderly person that needs a blanket. So. You know, that's the time that I say, okay, you know, put the research aside and try to do something to help somebody. Mhm, mhm. Now, you know, when you you speak of uh, trying to collect oral history and, and and document what's going on, uh, have you worked with any of the communities uh, to just document the oral history of the communities? Oh yes, yes. A lot of the people there, extensive interviews I've had with them. Uh, interviews that uh, we're preserving now and trying to get them uh, in the libraries or the archives because a lot of the people are talking about their life on these different plantations, uh, who mm-hmm. they work for, you know, the kind of life that they have. So that 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 is very important to be able to document the oral history. You know, people may not realize how important it is, but we're talking to the direct descendants of sharecroppers and sharecroppers themselves people who, Bernice, are still living on plantations, not mm-hmm. moved off plantation, but still on plantations. And and by them documenting that information, where is it going? Uh, I am putting it in the state archives, universities, libraries, uh, different places. I am also uh, using the Internet to archive some of these oral history collections that I have, uh, not just from the elderly people, but from the young people as well, because we want to hear from them uh, what life is like living in those remote uh, rural places with without a doctor's office, a library, uh, supermarkets, those sort of things, and how did they end up working on plantations as young as they are, you know, uh, you and I couldn't imagine that, but that is the way of life for a lot of people. Right, it, it certainly is. Well, Antoinette, now I know that in in your community, and and perhaps you want to tell people just where your community is, that you have managed to get the people in the community to trust you, to trust you to the point where they are bringing you documents and photos and showing you things that perhaps the ordinary person would not see. How did you get the community to come to you with this information? It's a very good question. It's a very good question because um, it took me 
sometime two to three years just to, to build a relationship and certainly a trustworthy relationship. And one, I realized that a lot of the people that um, I came across in those communities was in impoverished conditions. So the first thing, I would always go with something in my car, uh, whether it would be uh, food, blankets, coats for children, or, uh, school supplies. And people know that you really care when you do that. And so they open up and they share what they have with me. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that meant a lot to me. And sometimes just giving them something, uh, if they shared something with me, I wouldn't take their photograph, but I always went uh, with my own computer and my scanner. So that trust, that was something else that was very important um, to, to earn and to keep that trust. And that's very important to me in everything that I do is to make sure I keep a trusting relationship and my word is my bond. And that's something that our ancestors, uh, my grandfather and his brothers, you know, they shook hands. And, and, and if they said something, that was their word. And that's the way I, I kind of walk in their footsteps with that. Mhm. But what about um you know those folks who are just hearing about you? What are you doing to encourage them to to share uh their documents and and photos and stories? Well, a lot of people here in the areas that I work, they're so excited just to see their family name in print or their mm-hmm. family photograph in some newspaper or blog or on television, and when they tell somebody else or share it with someone, well, they put me in contact with other people because I'm collecting a lot of information, uh, lots of information. And so when I scan some of the documents, I know that the library will accept it, and they really enjoy knowing that they are leaving a legacy. But first of all, I really have to spend some time educating them on the importance of sharing and preserving that family history because I also find a greater percentage of a a lot of people still want to hold on to that photograph. Uh, They don't really want to share it. But then again, you hear about the house was burned down and, you know, we lost this hurricane, so now we don't have that picture. So it takes some education to do that, to let them know that they're leaving a legacy when they share it with a uh, with some repository that someone else can come behind them and learn from what they have documented. Mm-hmm. Now you just brought up another word here, repository. Now I know that there are two Antoinette Harrell collections. Is that right? That's correct. One at the Amistad, and, and so tell us about the collections. Tell us how you organize them, and why did you select the two places you uh, selected to, to leave your documents? Well, I selected Amistad because my work as an activist was not, it really wasn't just about my family history. It was my work as an activist in New Orleans. And because I had really been in, uh, as an activist around a lot of politicians in New Orleans, a lot of mayors, a lot of different meetings with the community. And so documenting that with photographs or if newspaper clippings came out about whatever we was doing, I saved all that information. And so I thought it would belong in New Orleans. And so New Orleans has an extensive, uh, the outside has a, a very extensive collection of some of my 
political activist work that I did in New Orleans. And so in the process of that, uh, process of that I added some things like my, my uh, African ancestry DNA trip to Africa, uh, to Niger, to, to Niger, and also some of my family records. Now, at Southeastern uh, University in Casper Hall Parish, which is in Hamlin, Louisiana, I select that university and that history department there because most of the material that I collect from the people in Casper Hall and St. Helena should go into Southeastern because they can access that uh, repository easier than they could in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And that was my and- choice, yeah. Right. Now, is this information online? I mean, how can individuals find out what's in the Antoinette Harrell collection? Oh, yeah. They can go to Southeastern uh, Louisiana University and just type in my name, and that collection will come up, and they will look at the extensive uh, titles of the the folders and the boxes. And so, first of all, let me just say this. Whenever I put a collection together to go anywhere, it takes me almost a year to prepare that collection because I have to organize that collection very well, put the folders there, and then I make my own index because there's so much that I'll forget what I have myself. Mm-hmm. And so with doing that, I'll spend, uh, if it's a, let's say if it's a folder on the Harrell side of the family. Well, if I have something for the Harrells, I put it in this folder. It's something for the butlers. So I sort of organize everything. The obituary uh, collection, the funeral programs. What I did, I made an index of uh, all the names before I gave it to the, the um, Southeast University. And so that was a very important decision to make, to get that information out of my home. And what really, really put the fire under, under me to do that was when I had that aneurysm last, two years ago and I came back to a new birth, I knew that I had to do something. It's one thing to research, to collect, to record. Now what are you going to do with it? Yes, yes. What are you going to do with it? And you can find yourself with a whole room, a whole house full of original documents. Now, these were original documents that you donated to Amistad and to um, Southeast. Yes, yes. The Amistad only take the original. Uh, Southeastern will take copies, just like a library. So I like to preserve in um, different places, and, I, and, and, and everybody have a different standard. But uh, and now you have to understand that when you donate this, this collection is no longer your collection. You don't have a right. You, you can't go in and say, okay, I want to take this back. You have donated. You, you have some some authority over the collection, but you really can't take it out. And just like if something happened to me, my children can't go back and say, oh, give me my mom's stuff. No, I signed it over to them. It is their property now. That's right. Now, okay, now there's a question coming out of the chat. Uh, do you have any advice on how to approach institutions uh, to give yes. your donations? Yes, I would say make an appointment, you know, whatever place you decide, if it's the state archives or university a library, uh, why don't you just call and make an appointment, let them know that what you want to come and talk to them about, and go there and look at, look at what is their procedure, how do they, you know, uh, um, how would they 
protect your your items that you're donating. That's very important because every place is totally different. And I know you know because you went to the Amistad and right. you know, they bought out the boxes. You had to, you know, show your driver's license and make sure that you don't have anything, no pencils, no ink pens, any of that, those things. Well, it's the same when you go to Southeastern University or the Louisiana State University, but a library is totally different. So I would not put any original documents in a library at all, at all. There's no security in there, uh, and I can give you an example of that. I was okay. at the Amit Genealogy Library, and I was in the archival room just recently, and I noticed that some European family had donated these beautiful photographs original photographs. One, it was in the room by itself, uh, along with, and I can bring my briefcase in, you can bring, um, you know, pencils mm-hmm. That shouldn't be. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure you go and look at how do they preserve that material before you make a decision to donate your family records there. Because it's just like saying if, it, if they're not going to make sure that you're family records are secured, well, it can walk out that library or it can walk out that place. So you want to make sure you go in there and just look at, um, you know, what's in between, you know, preserving in a public library, a state archives, or a university. Right. And someone is just asking for clarification when you say you wouldn't donate to a a library. You mean just a, a local public library. I would not donate original photographs and original documents to Mm -hmm. a public library, to the genealogy Mm -hmm. department. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. do it. I would donate copies, but I would Mm -hmm. not put my originals in there. Right. Well, with with your collection, do you know if either of the institutions are planning on digitizing them? Uh, no, most of the time you don't have, uh, it's like the Amistad, no, they will not digitize anything. You would stand a better chance of having something uh, 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 in a digital format if it's a university. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe. But with all the fundings being cut right now, you know, it will be a long time. It'll be a long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, you, I want to go back a few steps because this leaving your your materials is very important. And I wonder how many people would even write something in their wills where they want the information to go. And, And what advice would you give to someone about original documents that they have collected that's in their home? I mean, what should they be thinking about right now? Well, they should be thinking about what do I want to happen to my records. Uh, if there's someone in the family who you want to donate those items to, that should be a part of your will. Mm-hmm. And you should start thinking about what it is. You know, that is the third phase of your genealogy. You know, what do I do with all of my family records now that I have collected this very extensive, uh, all these records I have? How long did it take me? I have original copies. What am I going to do with them in the event that something happened to me or I become too ill to even deal with this collection? And when I spent all of those afternoons going through uh, my my material, the first thing I said to myself, this would not have been fair to my sons 
because, first of all, they don't know a lot of people, and mm-hmm. so their intentions may be well just by putting them in a box and hold on to them. But you know what happens over the years when you put things in a box and put them in the attic or you put it in the garage. Sooner or later, somebody will clean the garage out and out goes the, the, the original That's document. Right. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and if so, while you have that opportunity to speak to your children, your adult children, about what it is that you want and let them know how valuable this collection is to you, not only just in the will, but in a conversation with them over lunch, over dinner, uh, you know, just having tea or something, let them know just how important this is, especially, you know, for that, that you know, that child that may be more responsible uh, and, and sometimes their jobs and their occupation, their occupation or family life just doesn't give them that time uh, to really deal with that collection like you would want them to deal with it. So it's best that you deal with it yourself because nobody can do what you would do with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you said it took you an entire year to get your collection together. So that you mm-hmm. could donate it. I, I, give give us some advice. Go through the steps of exactly what do you need to do before you even have this information ready to be sent to somebody. Yeah, the first thing I had to do, I just really had to, to purge all my file cabinets, look at what, what was on the shelf, look at my photographs. And each time I do that, I go out and I get three boxes. One for the Amistad, one for the um, Southeast University, and one for the library. And then I'll have a, a, a little pile on the side for somebody in the family that I may want to donate, donate something to. So when I'm going through this, the decision is, okay, where do I want this to go? Which, which, which place is the best for this document here? And so it, it took me one year just to go through that information, because remember now, I'm still collecting. People are still giving me things. Mm-hmm. Every time I think I'm finished, somebody come and give me something else. But I do have a cutoff here that's okay, well, let me just do with this, deal with this, and every two to three years I go back and make another uh, donation to those repositories. But those three boxes are very important. It may take me up to two months just to put the material in the box because mm-hmm. I, I have to purge the files. So that means I go through all of my inventory. I go through everything, and I sit there, and things I forgot that I had because it's not like you're looking at it every day. You know, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. And so you say, oh, I didn't know I had this. And so you have to make that decision. And I believe I made the wisest decision that I ever could have made concerning my family history is by selecting repositories to donate my family records to. Mhm. And so you provided the uh the university and Amistad Center with a uh, an index of the documents exactly. and and you categorized these documents and had them in special archival uh boxes and folders. No, I before. did not. Okay. Once okay. you bring it to them, they the Amistad would do that for you. Mm-hmm. And um and and Southeastern will do it depending on what it is, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly when I bring it to them, it's, it's in folders. Uh-huh. And I will bring it to them, and they will take it from there. And now here's another thing. After you put all your information in the repository, 
you need to go back at least twice a year to look at your own collection to make sure things are there. And so mm-hmm. let's say I have three indexes available, right? Well, I put one index in the library. Each place I leave another uh, index and say, well, look, okay, if you, do, if you don't find it, let's go to Southeast University. Now, a lot of people like to put all their records in one place. Sometimes that's not possible to do so. Of course, we would like to have all your records in place. Let's take, for instance, uh, Dutch Moriel. Well, all of his information, uh, Mark Moriel made that decision to put his father's things in the Amistad. Well, you mm-hmm. wouldn't find anything in LSU special collections unless somebody was doing business with him and they made that decision to donate their things to LSU special collections. But most of the times when people try to make a donation, they try to get put everything in one place. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat. Is there an ongoing relationship you still have with both institutions and archivists? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because um, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of them know of the work I personally do in the Mississippi Delta or the community. And so they know that I'm going to come and see them soon because I found something, I came across something. Like, for instance, I'm going to give you something I came across. I came across a sharecropping uh, book, a day a day book where, the, you know, they would list how many uh, pounds of cotton the person picked, what plantation, what year. Well, that if that book was given to me, and so when I took it to the Amistad, and let me say, they always, the Amistad will appraise your collection. Oh, and that's something okay. else. Yes, they will have your, your collection appraised just to see what it is. Now, sometimes I'll come across a rare magazine or mm-hmm. a book, and so just to see what the price is on that magazine or what that uh, that magazine is selling for, I'll go on eBay and just to see what it is. And I've came across some magazines that was pricey, let's say about $45, $50, you know, so that way you know what you're giving away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what about all of these photos? Because you're, you're in a community where people are just giving you photos. What are you doing with those photos, and how are you identifying the people in the photos? Well, that's a that's a very good question, too. Um, a lot of times I collect these beautiful photographs, and no one knows who it is in the photograph. But it may be a photograph that can be important to the historical education of the area. Mm-hmm. Although we may not know the person, but it may be of something, uh, activity in church, or it may be a juke joint picture or something like that in the 60s. And so we we are able to use that photograph in more, in more ways than one. Although we may not know the person, and I try, and whoever's donating the material to me or the photos to me, I will ask them if they know the person. And sometimes, you know, more often than I would like to admit, a lot of times people really don't know who it is in the photograph. Mm-hmm. And which, that's something which, too. Yeah. That, yeah well, mm-hmm. it, it, those those who are listening, and I know everybody knows how important it is to label the pictures. Mm-hmm. To, it's to, very to important. say who who's in the picture, when the picture was taken, because mm-hmm. uh, memories uh, slip. <laughs> you know, they slip real quick. 
And, I mean, I, I even look at my own collection of photos, and I do have a lot of photos. And some I have not labeled because I'm trying to rely on my, my memory, and I know that that, that won't do. That Please will not don't do, do that. <laughs> That's that's mm-hmm. the one thing you don't want to do. That you want. To yeah, you don't want to do that. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. see, you may be healthy today, like any of us, and then something happens tomorrow, and there it is. You may not even be able to recognize your own aunt or your own uncle. Um, and so, I learned not only from what happened to me, but some of my genealogist friends who have spent years collecting, mm-hmm. and they passed away, and their children. Um, didn't do anything with those collections, and so I know sometimes we say, you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm going to get around to it, you know, uh, next year. But you need to have a things to do list and just give yourself uh, that time. I always try to purge my files starting in October, so at the first of the year, I really start off very fresh, and so mm-hmm. I really set up a nice system now that when I collect now, you know, I want to make sure I have it out within that year. So. It wouldn't be so much because I'm going to tell you, Bernice, I started off early in the morning with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, take a break. I actually had to walk outside and just look at the the, the clouds and the beautiful trees to get my head out of those fouls because it mm-hmm. can be overwhelming. It really can. Right, right. And then you just have people who are just collectors. It's just collecting, collecting, but what you're saying is move that collection. I mean, this is pretty much a call to action uh, to to all the listeners. I mean, you, you have your collections, and now, you know, people are digitizing their collections, putting them in the clouds, but what are you doing with that paper? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. see that, and, some, and sometimes we think that, you know, like our kids may look at a letter and say, wow, why is she saving this? But if you look at some of the collections of the Amistad, just the envelope with the letter inside of it. And so these days when nobody's not really doing too much of handwriting, you know, and so those handwritten letters are very important, you know, especially if you, like, my work as an activist is very important. And I don't think my sons really understand, and let me just say this here, you know, the work will become more important to them when I'm dead. Mm-hmm. Because everything, because of all the work that I've done, all the people I've worked with, and sometimes those things does not come out until after you have passed away, and mm-hmm. then it will come out. I can tell you, uh, I was talking with Leonard a couple of weeks ago, and he said, Antoinette, I had no idea that you came in contact with all the political people that I did in New Orleans Uh from, for all those years. So not only did I have my work as a community activist, but I had my work as an advocate for reparations. And so mm-hmm. I had all of these things with People Magazine, Time Magazine, the case that was filed, or the families uh, at the press conference in, in, in Chicago, you know, whatever it was. So I donated that type of material to the Amistad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a comment, Angela, saying, you know, when the clouds fade and the company shut down, the paper is still there. Uh, so saving the paper is important. And if it means it's putting it in important. a repository, it's very important because, you, like you said, you do have the original documents. And they That's are right. being preserved and, at a place, in, in, in a secure place. 
where that's right. and that was 100, 200 years from now, right? Yeah, but that's, that's right. leaving that and legacy. That's that legacy, that's and right. it's something that you know all of us need to think about. What are we going to do with all of the documents we have collected? And that's a major, major question, a major decision that we all should make, because. Those records was not doing me any good in the house, although I used them. But now look at how many students that may want to write their dissertation or their thesis, their thesis or writing a book. And so that means you're writing your family into history by having that information in a university or archives. How could we... How could anyone learn about the uh, the area if we don't? Let me give you a prime example of that. Dr. Professor Hyde, and you spoke with him over oh, there yes. at Southeast mm-hmm. University. Mm-hmm. Well, there was not there was no relationship between the blacks and the whites as far as preserving their history. So what Dr. Hyde said in his own words, he said, "We don't have enough black history of this parish." in our repository. So I said, okay, we're going to change that. And so, you know, it was the first extensive collection added to that to the Southeastern collection there about the local people. And when I tell you I'm learning so much about the black cowboys, um, the Choctaw Indians, it's just so much that I'm documenting that I almost need to write uh, get a 501c3 and apply for grants just to collect the history and preserve the history in St. Helena and Tanzania Hall Parish. Right, right. And once again, a call to action because people are coming from communities in which they have a, a, a black population, but the history is not there. It has not exactly. been written. It has not been written, and and so if you're right, if you're going to collect information and it has your family name in it, that you've just put your family in history. Others That's will go exactly in and look at did. those documents, and they'll see the Harrell family, or they'll see other families in that community. And that's something mm-hmm. to think about. That is something to think about. You know, there's a there's a, a, a another comment coming out. There's room for everyone to document their various communities of interest, and that is so true. That is so true. I mean, you I know, agree. you know what's happening in with the group from Edgefield, uh, the mm-hmm. history, the the heritage seekers. So the the stories, as as Family Tree Girl is saying, need to be told, and mm-hmm. this is the opportunity that we're trying to promote. You know, right here on Blog Talk Radio, the stories need to be told. You need to think about what that legacy is going to look like. But we're going to take a quick break, Antoinette, and come right back, okay? Sure. Research 
search at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you have been listening to Antoinette Harrell discussing leaving a legacy. And so, Antoinette, let's talk about television and radio and give us an example of some of the work that you've been doing in both mediums. Yeah, Bernice, uh, well, I've been on television now for 13 years in New Orleans and uh, basically talking about genealogy research and interviewing people uh, about their family history. My my guests will come on and talk about their family history. So I moved it to the radio because then I, um, I thought I could really move around the state of Louisiana, Mississippi to learn more and to interview and to collect more. But just recently, uh, NOA TV in New Orleans, Louisiana, have bought our shows to the Internet now. And so now people can join us right there on the Internet and look at the television shows. And, and if, you're in, if you are in the New Orleans, Louisiana area and would like to be a guest on a TV show, it's open. I want to hear. I want to share. I want you to share your history uh, with us as well as the radio. So that's very important that we have discussions like this. And Bernice, I deal with a lot in family history. It's not just about uh, the research. It's about building the family, uh, mm-hmm. trying to – because I can see a separation in in the, the generations, you know. A lot of the elderly people do not talk about the past because the young people don't want to hear it. And so mm-hmm. they shut down. And so, you know, by talking about family and the importance of our family history, reclaiming our legacy, you know, that's very important because when you're researching your family history, there's so much that you can come across, family land, family antiques, so much. It's just so much. And so I use those shows to promote family. That's what I do. That's wonderful. And I'm, I'm looking at a comment that's coming out of the – the chat from from Janice, and she's just talking about black folks have wonderful histories. You know, that's why in in Chicago they published uh, their own history book uh, to get Mm -hmm. some of those histories and genealogies in print. So, you know, it's it's just something that that needs to be encouraged, as you're saying. And the, the more you can talk about it, and especially you, as you said, this this gap, this kind of generation gap, where the elderly people are not communicating with the younger people or put it vice versa. They probably would if the Mm -hmm. young people wanted to hear what they had to say. Exactly. That's right. You know, it's amazing sometimes, Antoinette, when when you talk to people about oral history and the first thing they tell you is that nobody told me anything. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder, is it that nobody told them anything or they were not listening? What do you think? It's, it's a combination of both because uh, I found that uh, sometimes when the older people do not want to talk about their life as a young person, they shut down and they don't want anybody to know anything because now they're up in age and they're saved with the, you know, they would say they are living a whole different life now and it's a religious perspective then. And younger people, uh, they are just disconnected from the history once again because we're not sharing it, but and and so I decided to do something totally different with my grandchildren where I make history come alive, whether that's through quilt making, uh, recipes, or planning food. And that's one of the legacies that was passed down to me since we were talking about leaving a legacy. The legacy that my great 
Uncle Palmer Harrell gave me was planting food. And so now, Bernice, we're looking at, you know, um, families are losing their jobs. But look how many of us really knew and had that legacy of farming planted uh, passed down to us, but we want everything so quickly, like the microwave, everything. So I was mm-hmm. very happy uh, to 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 pass that legacy of planting food and, uh, to my grandchildren. And we have orange orange trees now, satsumas. We have uh, fresh herbs in the yard, and so that's the legacy that has mm-hmm. been in my family for a very long time. And I don't ever want to see it pass away. Now. Outside of my family, it is something almost like something of the past. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, you mentioned quilting. I mean, quilting uh, is something that that certainly I grew up seeing my mother do. And and every every person in the family has a quilt that she made, and she left the pattern. She left the pattern so it could be picked wow. up by someone, one of the grandchildren, because she definitely did teach my uh, my nieces how to quilt. But but clearly, um, it, there, there's so much to leave, uh, so much to inspire people to continue the family history and the uh, uh, family traditions. Uh, and of course, the planning. How many of us have gotten so far away from that? Mm-hmm. I remember my daddy mm-hmm. calling it a victory garden. You know, he had this mm-hmm. garden, and and what you go to the store and you buy vegetables that don't even look like vegetables that grow in the yard. They have That's strange right. looks and taste different uh, with right. all these That's hybrid right. seeds. So it's 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 definitely a challenge when you talk about that that legacy. Well, let's let's move into another area, and this is an area that you have worked on, I think, for about a year, and that's with the Dozier Reform School. Yeah. Why don't you tell everybody about Dozier and how you got involved? Well, Dozier Reform School that was open uh, in nineteen uh, nineteen. 1911, I'm sorry, 1901, and it closed down in 2011. It was a reform school for boys. And uh, because of my work in Penage and always researching to see if there has been any new development or cases uh, that has been filed against Penage, well, I came across a man named Roger Dean Kaiser uh, who wrote a book about being abused and at those reform schools. So I reached out to Roger to talk to him about uh, some of the things I had read on the Internet, and he put me in contact with uh, some of the black men who was boys at Dozer Reform School uh, in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. Well, after talking to those men and interviewing those men um, and listening to these men who worked as modern-day slaves as little boys, I knew that Penance was there. And so mm-hmm. I dug a little deeper just to look at some records, and there there it was I found that Penance was taking place. It's just that it was in the form of a school. And so uh, with that, then there's another hat that I wear. The black men was not getting the exposure that they needed in the media with telling what happened to them in their childhood experiences at Dozer. So then I sort of sort of became that agent to help them to uh, get their story heard by organizing press conferences, uh, taking them to the Tallahassee State Archives, reaching out to 
the attorney Pam, Attorney General Pam Bundy, and meet and introducing them again to work with uh, Dr. Eric Kimberly, the anthropologist there at USF. And so, with saying that. Uh, they are there at the school right now. Uh, they're excavating all of the, the, the remains of some of the black children that was murdered there uh, or died there at the school uh, on the black side of the campus. Well, there's, there's this one man in particular named Johnny Lee Gaddy who saw the children's uh, hand, one of the boys' hand, in the hog pen. And so... Uh, People Magazine just published an article, uh, article on it last week, but it has been all over the media, and I'm pleased to announce that and happy to announce that the uh, Black Boys at Doja Reform School has uh, finished their book, and it will be available for purchase on uh, November the 15th, the dog, the, the dog Days, uh, the, the Dog Horrors at Doja Reform School. And so I'm very happy for them. And I tell you, Bernice, when we talk about conducting our genealogy research and we find that somebody is missing in the family, we have to look at those reform schools. We have to look at the asylum records. We have to look at uh, the chain gangs because sometimes that's what happens to our family members. Uh-huh. Now, we all know that the, 19, the 1940 census just came out. Well, these men were there in the 50s. There was one that was there uh, in 1930. So we can't find them. It could possibly well be that we need to look in these type of places. And so this was some horrible things that took place with these children. Very, very horrible things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some people may put this in the, in the, under the category of forensic genealogy. I mean, you're really digging into some, some, very difficult topics uh, of which you may have a reaction or or results that that you didn't expect. And like you're saying, start digging. You're you're digging deep now uh, with missing people. And and where do you need to go to find missing people? Um, it's mm-hmm. coming out. There's a comment saying that this is heartbreaking. And I've listened to the shows, and I've listened to the men, and I've listened to their wives. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is is a situation that they will live with for the rest of their lives. And now and the story the story is out, though. That's right. And that's somebody's family members. When we think about them, we're conducting our genealogy. Uh, research in our own family history, and we said, well, wait a minute, where did they go? We know that they was here, but what happened to them? You know, and it's like it leads you to a cold trail and you can't find them. And then sometimes yeah. we have to look in places like that to see where, because now we're talking about a school that was open from 1901 to 2011. Mm-hmm. So how many times do we start looking in the 1900 census? you know, from 1870 to 1940. And so that's a lot of children. Uh, and, and, and not only did the school just carry just in that area of Mariana, but children came as far as my, Miami, Tampa, all around the state of Florida to go there. So uh, once again, those stories was very hard. And a lot of the children um, that end up there, their families was poor. They just couldn't afford, you know, mm-hmm, school clothing mm-hmm. and things like that. But I'm very happy that these men uh, will now tell their story in a book. 
Well, I'm 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 happy that they they had you to serve as their advocate and advisor and and to help them get their voice out there so that people could hear what they had to say. And speaking of voice, uh, you are a blog talk radio host. What kind of advice do you give or would you give to those who you would want to share their legacy? And, and perhaps blog talk radio might be one of those arenas for them to consider. But what advice would you give people? You know, I really like what you, everyone has a way of having their voice heard, whether that be through producing a documentary in the form of what Lena do or whether it be uh, what Angela is doing blogging and her, her podcast. I think that if everyone finds something that makes them happy with uh, uh, telling their story, whether it's in writing a journal or whatever it may be because everyone do not like to be on the radio or telling them from the radio. But I would just say document it. Mm-hmm. Just record it. Make sure you preserve it because somewhere down the line, someone is coming if they're not already here that would want to know that family history. I just wish I had a little bit more history on my grandmother's side of my grandmother, but I just found that recently. And let me tell you something. The reason it's so good to have good relationships with people, my first, my second cousin passed away, and his son posted up pictures on the Internet. And I asked him, I said, oh, uh, do you have any pictures of my grandmother? And he said to me, I wouldn't know what she looked like, and that's his grandfather's sister. So that mm-hmm. let me know right there that we have to find that way through through the media, through radio, through television, through blogging, through magazines, newsletters, to help our folks understand that it does take the village. We're weak because we're not together as a family like we used to be a long mm-hmm. time ago. And if you look mm-hmm. at the census, Bernice, they live down the road from each other, or down the street from each other, or on the land somewhere. Now, if we go back and we wait till the census come out in, let's say, the 1980, which many of us will not be here, but you will not find family living in the same area at all. So mm-hmm. the strength of the family is weakening down, and so we need to use every media uh, that we can to talk about building stronger family ties. That's right. And, you know, Angela has just posted that we have so many options uh, about getting the word out about our our genealogy and, and, and leaving our legacy, writing, talking, teaching, acting, collaborating, coordinating events, books. I mean, the opportunities are there. It's just that you have to, I guess, find what makes you happy and do it. You know, write that book, tell that story, organize that play, but do something. Do not. Do not spend the rest of your life living, and when you're gone, nobody has anything to remember you by. It's leaving a legacy. Leaving a legacy. Leaving a legacy. and, and, And that's what I think about. I thought about my family, leaving a legacy. And when I'm gone, when I'm no longer here, and as I reincarnate myself and my granddaughter by teaching her, you know, teaching her the importance of the family history, taking her on these trips with me, uh, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm planting that seed early 
so mm-hmm. that when it's my time to, to retire, I can pass it on to my granddaughter. That's right. Well, do you have any words of wisdom before we close out tonight? Yes, I would like to say, first of all, I uh, just say get started. Just do something, and believe me, believe that legacy. And to all of you genealogists, okay, now you have recorded, you have researched, you collect. It's time for you to make that decision to bring it out to the library. Because remember now, every history book, is about something or someone or event. And you know what? History will not change. The books will not change until we start to document our history in those and tell our own story. Like Angela mm-hmm. just said, write the book, like Lynn is doing, producing documentaries, like you are doing, hosting, and you are author yourself. So we are mm-hmm. changing history. All I can say is just get started. Listen to That's the inner voice inside of you. That's right. It will lead That's you. right. Let's let's get started. In fact, I want everybody to just... Uh, may the Heavenly Father bless you on this journey that you're on. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much. And remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints. That's right. They left a, a legacy. So why don't you do the same thing? So you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and Beyond. And, you know, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And, of course, always remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond. And over to you joining me next Thursday. Uh, Good night. This is your host. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.